Well, it is once again my joy to be able to open up the Word of God for you this morning so that we can look into its treasure chest and once again enjoy all that is there for us by His grace. This morning I would invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, and we find ourselves in verses 53 through 58 this morning, Matthew chapter 13. Before we look at the text, may I preface the exposition this morning by drawing your attention to this issue of why do people reject the obvious. You may recall several years ago, I don't remember when, I think it was with the Wendy's commercials. Uh, It may have been another commercial, but I remember it was a hamburger commercial. And they had a choice given to people where this surveyor would get people in a mall or whatever, and certainly it was all staged, but he would have a hamburger A and a hamburger B. And you may recall, hamburger A was this delicious hamburger. It was obvious that it was far superior to hamburger B. It had a large piece of meat and all of the lettuce and tomato and a big nice bun. And hamburger B looked like somebody sat on it. You know, it was it was just a nasty looking burger that, you know, nobody would choose. And it was rather ridiculous. And he would ask people, you know, look at these two hamburgers and which would you want? This delicious hamburger A or this nasty hamburger B? And to everyone's amazement, people would choose hamburger B. You may remember that. If you don't, at least you know it now. And so often that's the way it is with truth. There will be something that is just so obvious that it is the truth and something else that is obvious that it's a lie and people choose the lie. Inconceivable. Perhaps there is no greater frustration than to present irrefutable, overwhelming evidence pertaining to some situation only to have it rejected. I call it the two plus two equals five phenomena. No matter how you explain it, people don't seem to get it. In the field of science, there is overwhelming evidence of intelligent design pointing to our creator. And so what do we conclude? Everything just evolved randomly. It's incredible the evidence that the religion of Islam has been and continues to be a religion of violence and barbarism bent on world domination. We've seen that all through history. So what do we conclude? It is a peaceful religion that needs to be applauded. There is devastating evidence exposing the tragic physical and social consequences, not to mention spiritual consequences of homosexuality in a huge and growing body of evidence, even in secular research. So what do we conclude? We need to affirm it and even teach it to our children that it is an alternative lifestyle. There are indisputable pieces of evidence 
that our country was founded upon the principles of biblical Christianity and has prospered by the same. What's the conclusion? We need to remove God from basically every public place and certainly the Lord Jesus Christ and any reference to that. Perhaps you heard of the man that's trying to even get that out of the um, the president's words coming up in the inauguration. He's been unsuccessful so far, but he's going to continue to try the atheist. So we want to eradicate any any semblance of Christianity from the public psyche. Or we could look at another example. Many of you, I know, have talked with me and lamented over some of your family members who profess Christ, but they believe sometimes bizarre things that are easily refuted in Scripture, which sometimes call into, calls into question even their basic intellect, not to mention their salvation. How can that be? You present compelling truth to them and show them right from Scripture, and they choose hamburger B. But certainly the greatest frustration of all is when you present the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have no hope. They have no purpose in life. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the Bible tells us, even though it is evident through creation and through conscience that God exists. All they're doing is pursuing the, the, the fleeting pleasures of this short life. And yet they want nothing to do with the gospel. Leave me alone. I don't want to hear it. Well, today we examine this travesty of travesties, the willful rejection of the obvious. And we will look at why do people do it and what should be our response? Because this was precisely what Jesus dealt with in his ministry. Now, having said that, let's go to the text this morning in Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Here we witness a perfect illustration of what Jesus said earlier in his parable of the sower, where the seed falls along the roadside and the birds come and eat it up. What I had called, as we looked at that text, the impervious heart, a heart that is rock hard so that people are unable to receive the gospel seed because of sin and deception. Their hearts are impervious to truth. And it wasn't because here of, of, of a lack of evidence, but even despite all the evidence. And we see this in numerous places throughout Scripture. 
we especially see it when we consider Jesus's first trip back to his hometown and his home synagogue. May I remind you of that for a moment? This happened about a year prior to what we've just read. And Luke four records this visit that he had a year earlier when he came home after his baptism and his temptations in the wilderness. In Luke four, we read that he, he comes back to Nazareth. And in verse 14, we see that the news about him had spread through all the surrounding district. And we also read in chapter in verse 15 that he was praised by everyone. And so their initial response was very enthusiastic. They were very positive. You know, the hometown heroes kind of coming home here. And in Luke four, beginning in verse 17, we read that all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? But of course, Jesus knew that their favorable impression of him was merely local pride in their hometown prophet. All these miracles and speaking with such theological brilliance. He knew that it wasn't because they really grasped the truths that he was saying in their hearts because they had no idea that his message exposed their hypocrisy and their sin and their wickedness and their need for salvation. So back in Luke, we read that Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 verses one and two, and then he exposited the text and exposed their provincial pride. He exposed their self-serving desires to see him perform miracles just for entertainment and expose their sinfulness and their need to place their faith in him as Savior and Lord and to see him as their Messiah. And if you read that text, you will see that the people rose up within the synagogue and it became a mob and they took him outside and they went to a place, a large cliff, and we can see that cliff to this day. I've been there. They took him to the edge of the cliff to throw him to his death. And miraculously, the text says that he passed through their midst. A miraculous and unexplained escape. Now, Jesus comes back. Basically, a year later is where we are here in this text. And in the intervening years, or in the intervening months, I should say, he has performed miracles all around Galilee. People have seen his power. They've heard his wisdom. Over and over again, we read how that they were amazed, which means they were just awestruck. They were dumbfounded. Now he has come back. Even the religious leaders have acknowledged his supernatural powers. Yet blasphemously, they have attributed them to Satan. Remember, even Nicodemus came to him and said, you know, you must be a teacher. You must have come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him in John three. Yet still the people refused to believe him. How can that be? They ignored the facts. They rejected the obvious and they even resented Jesus and became offended with his message. Why? Why would people refuse to embrace the truth in light of such overwhelming, irrefutable, compelling evidence? They even said in our text here in verse 54, when he began teaching to them in their synagogue, it says that, that they became astonished. The grammar indicates that, 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 that when they were hearing this, they became amazed. They were astounded. They were overwhelmed. 
To say Jesus was a brilliant theologian and expositor is a profound understatement. He was the omniscient creator and sustainer of the universe. The, the, the word that had become flesh, the incarnate Christ. Everything that he said was crystal clear. It was irrefutable. It was compelling. It was convicting. And yet they wouldn't believe it. They even became offended by it and they resented him. Moreover, in verse 54, they, they, they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Why? What is the source of such insanity? What fuels such staggering unbelief? Well, there are three things that we will look at this morning that don't necessarily flow directly from this text, even though they're implied in it. We see these things in other passages. Three primary reasons why people will choose hamburger B when it comes to spiritual issues. Let me give them to you and then I will address them. First of all, because of the love of sin. Secondly, because of satanic deception. And thirdly, stubborn pride. First of all, the reason people reject the obvious is because of the love of sin. You may recall when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, even when Nicodemus came to him and said, you know, you must be from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus went on then to explain both the cause and the consequences of unbelief. Why so many people don't believe him there in John three, beginning in verse 18, he says, and this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. There you have it again. They love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. There's why they love their sin. Their deeds are evil. They don't want to be exposed by the light for everyone. He goes on to say who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, people will do anything to justify their sinful lifestyles, even to deny and to, and to distort Scripture, distort the truth. They love the world more than they love God and his glory. I think of many examples of this over the years of ministering to people, especially in counseling. I've had the joy of working with a number of homosexuals, both men and women, and seeing some of them come to Christ and many reject him. But I think of one homosexual couple that I had just begun dealing with, two men, and I use the word couple not in the biblical sense, but in the worldly sense. But one had just been diagnosed with AIDS and wanted me to be with him when he explained this to his partner and help break the news to his partner. And I'll never forget the response of the partner. His response was a very emotional. Even though you have AIDS, I will never leave you. We will die together. And within about a year and a half, the first one died about six months later. The other one did. And, you know, I remember trying to warn them of their sin. I would exposit various texts and it was obvious that they were ignorant of truth and they didn't want to hear it. 
I explained to them biblically how that this is an abomination because it is a basic inversion of God's moral and physical laws. And they remained unteachable and they would say things like, well, that's just your interpretation. Or, well, but you don't understand, we were born this way. And I would refute that biblically with the truth and even with other pieces of scientific evidence, but all to no avail. Why? Why didn't they see it? Well, again, Romans 1 helps us to understand this. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Even as Jesus is saying, they love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In Romans 1, when he talks about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, we see that eventually God lifts his restraining grace and he gives them over. Several times he uses this term. He gives them over. In the original language, that is a judicial term that means or that was used to refer to to handing a, a, a prisoner over to an executioner, someone that was condemned to be handed over to an executioner to carry out a sentence. And in that text, it talks about those who habitually reject God will eventually be handed over, will be rejected by God. Folks, this is the wrath of divine abandonment. When people love their sin more than God and they refuse to hear it, they refuse to hear any truth. And so what does God do? Eventually, he removes all restraint of the conscience and he abandons them to the consequences of their lusts. Even with these homosexuals, as I've warned so many of them, they will live with constant heartache. They will probably die of AIDS or some other physical problem because the physical mutilation in that community is beyond words. They live with guilt. They're anything but gay. And many of them suffer a violent death. Why? Because... They love their sin more than the truth. And eventually God abandons them to the consequences of their iniquity. And tragically, unless they repent, he will abandon them to eternal judgment. In fact, in Romans 1, we read that God gives people over to carry out the lusts of their heart, gives them over to degrading passions of homosexuality, and finally gives them over to a depraved mind which literally means a worthless mind, a useless mind, a mind that is utterly incapable of discerning any spiritual truth. First Corinthians 2.14, we read how that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to them. They, they don't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, they have no capacity to discern truth. Dear friends, people reject obvious truth because they love their sin, because they're slaves to their sins. They're bound by them. They love darkness rather than light. They despise wisdom, which is the fear of God. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, you may recall the writer of, the, of Hebrews is speaking to the unbelieving Jews who continue to harden their heart against the gospel of grace. And he said to them, encourage one another day after day. As long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, they continued to reject Christ in favor of Jewish legalism, and it just kept hardening their heart. And I might add that even for believers, we must be careful 
We can harden our hearts against truth. We can learn to resent certain truths that we just don't want to hear because we love some besetting sin in our lives. That's why James 1.19, we read that we are to be slow to anger. In the context there is when we hear the word of God. To not have a seething resentment when we hear spiritual truth. For it goes on to say, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We need to guard ourselves against sinful attitudes and habits that blind us to spiritual truth. We need to search our hearts. We need to confess those sins. I think of the psalmist in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 12. He says, who can discern his errors? In other words, it's so hard for me to see some of the secret sins, some of the the subtleties of my sin that, that many times I'm not even aware of. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me, he says. Acquit me of my hidden faults. In other words, help me see my unintentional sins of which I need to become aware so that I can confess them. But then he also goes on to say, also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. There's are the uh, are, are, are the intentional sins, the ones that we commit with full knowledge. And he says, let them not rule over me. So again, first of all, we see that people reject the object obvious because they love their sin. It becomes an opiate that dulls their senses to truth. But secondly, they reject the obvious because of satanic deception. In Second Corinthians four, we read the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In other words, he has prevented unbelievers from having the ability to reason. Then it goes on to say that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, satanic philosophies in our world and false religions, false teachers all pander the lusts of men and women and blind them to the light of spiritual truth that is so obvious to those who have been given spiritual eyes to see by the regenerating power of the spirit of God. I might remind you of Genesis chapter 3. There we read in verse 1 how Satan tempted Adam and Eve. In verse 1 it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In other words, through cunning deception, he caused her to doubt the obvious interpretation of the will of God as he had articulated it to them to question the clear presentation of his will. And of course, he offered his twisted alternative interpretation that appealed to her flesh. By the way, heresies are really fascinating, and I spend probably at least a couple of hours every week reading heresy. I have to, to be able to help you see the counterfeits. Many of you email, people call in. I'm dealing with it all the time. And I'm always fascinated to see how subtly they twist the truth. How clever they are at taking something and then right at the end kind of twisting. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what that text is saying. And I'm just amazed at how clever it is. How they can torture a text with some twisted distortion. And of course, this is what happened with Eve. And although she was sinless, 
she was predisposed to temptation. And so Satan ingeniously appeals to her pride and, 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 to the, and to her lusts. And he offered her another interpretation. One that promised greater blessing than what she was currently enjoying. That's why in verse 4 of Genesis 3 we read that the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, folks, this is always Satan's tactic to offer an explanation of God that makes him out to be stingy or unfair, yet malleable. In other words, he's capable of being manipulated. And certainly Satan, through his false teachers, are going to show you how what the formula is to manipulate God, to get him to do what you want. And to make him out to be one that really is so unfair to sinners that we begin to think, you know what, we deserve a little better than what we're getting here. To get people also to doubt his goodness and to question what I would call the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. The Bible says something that's very obvious and they can come along and twist it and it says something altogether different. And then to offer a deceptive and a damning substitute that appeals to the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And to present that error, that heresy in a winsome and compelling way. I've heard so many of the of the lines. Well, you know, the, the Bible is just an ancient book of myths and legends with a lot of good moral insights, but it should not be taken literally. Or, well, you know, Jesus was a great philosopher, a great teacher that showed the world how to love, but he was not God. Uh, you, you know, you can believe in Allah, Buddha, whatever, you know, choose from a hundred uh, uh, different uh, man-made religious systems. Um, you know, all all rivers lead to the ocean type of thing. And, uh, they're, they're, you know, there are always these various types of uh, religions. And you can kind of choose the one that kind of fits best for you. And basically, folks, what you have is religious systems where man gets to concoct his own standard and then live up to it. We even see this winsome, appealing, compelling type of heresy in contemporary evangelicalism where you have preachers that will tickle everyone's ears. Don't tell them about the truth of sin and repentance and judgment and talk about holy living and so on. Tell them what they want to hear. I mean, after all, what people want to hear is how God is on your side and how he wants to heal all of your diseases and make you wealthy and make you successful, make you popular, make you powerful and so on. You know, Satan is great at this. Paul describes Satan's purveyors of deception in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13, saying, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Friends, never underestimate the power of Satan to deceive in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, you may recall Paul there is warning the church in Corinth about false teachers, the emissaries of Satan, 
who will uh, rise up right from uh, right from within the church and corrupt the minds of the people with all kinds of clever lives, lies that will cause them to abandon their simple devotion to Christ. And in that text, he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And folks, I understand that. I fear that many times for you and for me. We always must be on guard because Satan is ingenious in his deceptions. I'm going to digress for a moment. I've had people ask me, even someone this last week, what are some of the red flags that you use, Pastor? Some of the things that would help you, you know, be discerning. And, uh, of course, I am very concerned with doctrinal precision. Not only because I want to guard against deception in my own life, but folks, I have a stricter judgment than you do. I have to give an account. I am to be God's messenger. And when I speak to you, I've got to tell you precisely what God is saying and make sure that Dave Harrell isn't in it. And so there are things that that are red flags for me. And I'm going to give them to you with very little explanation because that's not really what what this text is all about today, but I do think it fits here, especially given some of the questions that I've had from different ones. Let me give you red flags and I'll give them to you quickly. And if you want the whole list and this is I'm certain I'm sure not an exhaustive list, but I'd I'd be glad to give you a copy of this. First of all, I'm always on guard for anything that is unbiblical, which basically and that's kind of the summary statement. You've got to know the scriptures, folks. You've got to know your theology. You've got to know what the truth is to spot the error. I am against anything and I'm suspect of anything that does not use a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic in Bible interpretation. Anything that's an allegory, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm uh, I'm very suspect of anything that does not emphasize the glory and holiness of God and does not view the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, infallible, all sufficient word of the living God. If anybody's written anything that doesn't believe that or holds seminars or writes music or anything, then then I I, I know that I just want to stay away from it. And again, many of you will bring books to me or bring, you know, seminars or tapes and ask me, what do you think about this person? And, you know, these would be some of the things that I would use to to uh, to to be discerning. Folks, I am um, very suspect of anything that is novel. In other words, anything that is new and fresh and innovating that no other theologian in 2000 years has seen. I'm suspect of that. Anything with a formula, seven steps to freedom in Christ, the four spiritual laws, three steps to claiming your healing, you know, all of this type of thing. I'm suspect anything that is derived from, quote, revelation apart from Scripture. In other words, if someone has had a vision, a word from God, a word of knowledge, I don't want to, I don't even want to hear it. Anything that is popular. If it's a bestseller, I'm suspect. If it draws great crowds like promise keepers, evangelistic crusades, the purpose driven church materials, anything seeker sensitive, seeker sensitive or whatever. I'm very suspect. That's typical of what I would call wide gate theology. Remember, folks, there's a narrow way and a broad way. Few are going to find the narrow. Many are going to find the broad. 
So wherever I see hordes of people rushing in to some spiritual leader, I'm suspect. Anything that grows real fast causes a red flag for me, whether it be a church, a seminar, anything that has a price attached to it. In other words, if I see that it's making money for someone or some denomination or some other organization, which, by the way, includes most of what is sold in typical bookstores, if it's uh, seminars, books, records, Artists that charge huge fees for their so-called ministry or pastors living in fabulous wealth with ostentatious lifestyles. They're probably false teachers. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to read their material. Anything that has a social or political agenda, anything that has a television ministry, anything that is presented or written by a Christian artist or some other celebrity. Anything that comes from a religious organization that is not attached to a church, for example, a parachurch organization that has no theological accountability or is not ruled by qualified elders. And again, it's not to say that all of it's bad, but much of it will be. You've got to be careful. Things like James Dobson's focus on the family. Very suspect. There's some wonderful things there and some other things that are absolute heresy. Anything that ultimately solicits attention to some denomination, anything that identifies with ecumenism, like the World Council of Churches, evangelicals and Catholics together, those types of things, or anything that is considered interdenominational. Very, very suspect of that for a number of reasons. Anything associated with the charismatic or Pentecostal movement. Anything that smacks of prosperity theology, faith healing, or some excessive emphasis on Satan and demons, or promotes emotionalism. Anything where a woman has assumed the role of pastor and teaches men, that is biblically always a sign of defection. Anything that uses contemporary music as a method of evangelism. Anything that integrates psychology with theology. Anything that uses paraphrases or free translations of the Bible to defend some position. Things like the Message Bible or the Living Bible or the, the Phillips Modern English Bible or Good News Bible or whatever. Although I would hasten to add that I do not find the King James only position to be compelling. So, folks, be discerning. Those are a few things. And again, it's not to say that in every case, everything is bad, but you do have to be careful. And certainly over the years, I have found that that list will pretty well. I mean, if you, if you, at least it needs to raise some red flags. OK, it needs to raise some red flags. Satan is cunning. I want to remind you that, that the Bible says that the world awaits a coming Antichrist who will seduce the world with his lies during the tribulation. It's interesting, Joseph is uh, is in uh, Switzerland right now with the uh, what is it uh, the World Economic Forum where all of the top executives of the major corporations in the world are meeting to discuss the economy of the world and I was teasing him saying you might get to meet the Antichrist there you never know but um, anyway there is a, a, an Antichrist that will someday come a man that will be possessed by Satan. He will be the embodiment of all the perverted purveyors of satanic lies from the beginning. 
In fact, the Bible says that anyone who denies the incarnation and deity of Christ is an antichrist. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Islamic people, uh, Judaism, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, frankly, most people that are what we call the people of faith, which is nothing more, as I see it, than a euphemism for apostates. But God has warned this, warned us that the Antichrist is coming. And in first John four, three, it says, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. In other words, the ultimate Antichrist that will come, that person is now already casting his shadow by many other Antichrists. In 2 Thessalonians 2.9, we read, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And folks, we see that to this day, don't we? We see false teachers filled with greed and immorality and hungering for power, deceiving vast numbers of naive and desperate people with all kinds of satanic powers and, and, and false signs and lying wonders, deceiving people into believing things about God that are not true. In fact, in, in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warns about the extreme deceptions that will occur during the time of the tribulation. And we see, again, precursors of this today. There he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. By the way, may I add, we can rejoice based on this text, that true believers will not be deceived by the extreme examples of deception. But we are susceptible to the subtle lies that can lead us astray. This is why we are told in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, literally the cunning deceptions of the devil. So, again, what causes people to reject obvious spiritual truth? Number one, they love their sin. Number two, satanic deception. And number three, stubborn pride. Pride is an inordinate opinion of one's importance. Pride is the exaggerated estimation of one's value. Where we have feelings of superiority and preeminence. And it will manifest itself in criticizing and dominating other people. I know more. I deserve more. I'm better. I'm smarter. The rules don't apply to me. It inevitably leads to controlling people because they see proud people see themselves as the authority. And they typically function through intimidation. Everybody hates a bully. At least I do. But bullies insist that others do what they say. And if people fail to respond to the per proud person's demands, they explode in a violent rage. By the way, I many times use the acrostic acid to describe them. They are people that are angry, controlling, intimidating and demanding. Stubborn pride, my friends, is far more deadly than we can imagine. It was because of pride that Satan wanted to be like God, knew the truth of who he was, and rebelled against him and was cast out of heaven. What an inconceivable arrogance that aroused the eternal wrath of God. In Proverbs 16, verse 5, we read that everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. 
Friends, please hear this. There is no greater blasphemy than for the pot to think it is higher than the potter. What idiotic vainglory. Think of it. What is there that we have that has not been given to us? Therefore, for what reason do we have to be proud? That great English pastor about 150 or so years ago said this, Charles Spurgeon, and I quote, Oh, man, learn to reject pride, seeing that thou hast no reason for it. Whatever thou art, thou hast nothing to make thee proud. The more thou hast, the more thou art in debt to God. And thou shouldst not be proud of what renders thee a debtor. Consider thine origin. Look back to the hole of the pit whence thou wast dragged. Consider that thou wouldst have been even now if it were not for divine grace. And consider that thou wilt yet be lost in hell if grace does not hold thee up. Consider that amongst the damned, there are none that would have been more damned than thyself if grace had not kept thee from destruction. Let this consideration humble thee that thou hast not wherein to ground thy pride. End quote. Friends, pride is a vicious monster. It causes insanity that evokes, frankly, the most eloquent of all divine condemnations. We read this throughout the infallible record. In Proverbs 28, verse 25, we read, An arrogant man stirs up strife. To say it differently, wherever you see strife, wherever you see broken relationships, you know that pride is its source. First Peter 5, 5, we read that God is opposed to the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. Now you ask, how, how does pride prevent people from seeing obvious spiritual truth? Simple. Because pride makes the heart hard, not allowing truth to penetrate. In fact, spiritual truth exposes pride. It infuriates pride because the blazing light of God's holiness calls for humility. I think of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah saw God on the throne, lofty and exalted. You will read how that the train of his robe was filling the temple and the seraphim were antiphonally calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the foundations of the thresholds of the temple, temple began to tremble. And it trembled at the voice that called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And what did it produce in Isaiah? Instant confession. Instant humility. You see, humility is always a result of the proper view of God and of His glory and of ourselves. But pride knows nothing of that. The proud person resents anything that condemns them because they are convinced of their own self-righteousness. They are convinced that they know everything. And so they become unteachable. And if I can put it this way, pride sits upon the throne of our heart and pompously boasts of its achievements and rejects obvious condemnation and snaps its fingers, demanding that other people and other systems of thought be subservient to them. And to obey their every whim. You will never hear a proud person say, I'm not sure. You will never hear a proud person say, 
I was wrong. You will never hear a proud person say, I have believed a lie. Help me understand. I never knew that. Thank you for exposing my error. You'll never hear that. And you will never hear them say, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. And I will change even if it takes me to a cross. See, these are the words of humility. If I can make this real practical, if you have a reputation of being an acid person, angry, controlling, intimidating, demanding, if people describe you as explosive, overbearing, critical, stubborn, friends, your heart is filled with pride. People that jump from relationship to relationship, from marriage to marriage, from job to job, from church to church, are people filled with pride. God has warned us in Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Friends, as certain as fire produces ashes, pride will result in ruin. That's the way the Jews were in Nazareth. They were so filled with pride, they refused to admit the obvious, that Jesus was the Messiah, that they needed to repent of their religious hypocrisy, of their self-righteousness. Jesus comes along and says, if any man wants to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and take up a cross daily and follow me. But pride says, no, 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 no. I will exalt myself and you will serve me. And I will learn every way possible to learn how to manipulate you to accommodate my every whim and my every wish. Jeremiah 43 and verse 2. God speaks of all the arrogant men that called God's prophet Jeremiah a liar. You see, he did not tell them what they wanted to hear, so they hated him. Friends, when when truth tries to enter an arrogant heart, Inevitably, it will be sprayed with the venom of contempt by the serpent of pride that lies coiled with inside, right inside the door of our heart. Deception is always the fruit of pride. Contempt is always the fruit of pride. And I think of God's judgment against the haughty Edomites. In Jeremiah 49, verse 16, it says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You see, again, pride will deceive. And God goes on to say, I will bring you down. Friends, again, the proud will be humbled as sure as death follows life. And I think of Daniel 5, where you will recall Daniel is asked by Belshazzar to to explain the handwriting on the wall. And Daniel describes the judgment against Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, who let his wealth and his power go to his head. And in verse 20 and following, he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, this was referring to Nebuchadnezzar, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And you will recall later on, the text goes on to talk about how that he was made to to even eat grass like like a cow. I mean, God humbled him. And he did that, the text says, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets and and that he is the one that sets over it whom he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart 
even though you knew all of this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. So, again, we see an example of stubborn pride blinding the eyes of someone to the obvious. And by the way, that night he was slain by the Medes and the Persians. Beloved, pride hardens the heart. It veils people's eyes to spiritual truth and it causes people to believe lies. The psalmist says in Psalm 10 and verse 4, the wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are there is no God. Well, of course, of course, a proud person wants to believe that, because if you admit that there is a God, then you also must admit that you must bow before him and obey him. In Proverbs 26 and verse 12, we read, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And, you know, people believe crazy things, don't they? You can even reason from Scripture with them. And many times it's obvious that they, they can't even explain their own kind of harebrained position. Two plus two is going to be five, no matter how you explain it. Folks, what is needed at that point is not more explanation, but a loving rebuke and a forthright rebuke of stubborn pride. In fact, we read in 1 Timothy 6, 4, that if anyone believes anything contrary to Scripture, they are conceited, and understand nothing. Notice it doesn't say they are confused and they need more explanation. Many times what people think, and I've dealt with this for years, you sit there and you explain it every way to Sunday. And it's still two plus two is five. Folks, the problem is not a lack of understanding, it's pride. So because of the love of sin and satanic deception and stubborn pride, people like the Jews in Nazareth reject the obvious. And then they resort to all kinds of silly reasoning to justify their rejection. Notice in verses 55 and 57, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? I mean, folks, what on earth does that have to do with anything? What silly reasoning is that? Unless they're thinking, well, you know, the only people that can really teach us are the 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 ones that have been trained, you know, the ones with the THDs here, the the the, the Pharisees, the, the the Sadducees or the scribes or whatever, only the intellectual elite. By the way, isn't it funny? And we've all heard this. An expert is defined as a person with a briefcase from out of town. You know, it can never be someone inside. Maybe they're thinking of that. But but the point is simply this. It is laughable what people will come up with to somehow avoid the truth. The tortured diversions people will contrive to avoid the truth. Other people will say, well, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I hear what you say, but, but how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, wait a minute, you know, where are we going with this? Well, they'll say, that's just your interpretation. Oh, really? Well, that's that's not what I've always been taught. And, you know, I have found that people typically believe the first thing they were ever taught or they believe something from someone that they hold in very high esteem. And because of their devotion to that person, if you present them with truth that is contrary to the error that maybe that well-meaning person that these other people love has taught them, they still will reject it because of their devotion to that person. And there again, that's pride. 
So we must look at the motives of our heart, lest we be deceived by our own lusts, combined with the the father of lies that can convince us of deceptions, not to mention our own stubborn pride. And finally, isn't it sad? Notice verse 57. And they took offense at him, it says. Why? Well, because he unmasked their hypocrisy, their arrogance. By the way, now we can better understand why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, this is the opposite of pride. The poor in spirit are the ones uh, who, who will have the kingdom of heaven, he says. The poor in spirit means those that are destitute, those that are bankrupt, those that see they have nothing to offer spiritually. And they cast themselves upon the mercy of God. And then verse 58, he says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Folks, this was really an act of mercy. Do you realize that? Because had he performed more miracles, had he entertained their hard-hearted hearts, he would have exposed them to even greater condemnation because he knew that they were hard-hearted and rejected him. Jesus has warned us all in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, finally, you know, many people ask me, Pastor, what do you do with your loved ones and your friends that reject the obvious? And I just give you very quickly, simply this. Love them enough to confront them with the dangers of pride. Pray for them that they will humble themselves before the truth because it is probably pride that is preventing them from seeing the truth as much as anything, not to mention the love of their own sin. And then continue to overwhelm them with biblical truth. Unleash the gospel of truth. It's the power of God unto salvation, not your eloquence. I like to think of it this way, spit in their soup. They may continue to drink that soup, to eat that soup of error, but it will never taste as good as it once did because you have spit in their soup a little bit of truth. And I say that not to be haughty or mean-spirited, but because you want people to know the truth and then to model humble obedience yourself, keep unleashing same truths to them verbally and through your life. And know this, and I don't have time to expand this. I'll do this at another time. But know this, their lives are in turmoil. Okay? Mark that. Their lives are in turmoil. And I would defend that on the basis of, of Psalm 19, Romans 1, a number of passages. But what you've got going for you, friends, is they may believe the lie, just, I mean, with all of their heart. But you know what they don't have in the middle of the night? The peace of God. You know what they don't have when adversity hits their life and they begin to suffer? They don't have a supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. You know what they don't have when they go to explain their harebrained contrived convictions? They don't have the Spirit of God illuminating their heart and mind. And they don't have the infallible record of the living God and on and on and on. So know this, that no matter how hard they try to defend their deceptions, their life is in turmoil and yours isn't. And when you continue to come back with them and help them see 
even especially in the midst of great difficulty in your life, how God is still to be trusted and how he is sovereign, then you are defending that hope that is within you. And it has enormous power to those people who are believing a lie and living in confusion and turmoil and guilt. So know that you've got that going for you. Well, I trust that this brings some clarity to this issue of why people reject the obvious. And I would encourage all of us to examine our hearts and patiently endure with those who love their sin more than the truth. Those who have been deceived by the cunning lies of Satan and also who are filled with stubborn pride. Knowing that their life is in turmoil. And only by God's grace will they ever know the truth. And may we devote ourselves to that end. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your truth and we recognize that it is not because of our intelligence or because of some merit of our own that we even understand anything. But all of the glory goes to you and we praise you for revealing truth to us and opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds. Lord, I thank you for the grace that is ours through Christ. And I pray that you will bring conviction to those who are still loving darkness more than light. Lord, we plead for their souls. And we do so in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.